go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. It is good to see you guys again, some of you new faces, and looking forward to meeting you, and some of you old friends. Not that you're old, we just don't need other for a while. And it's good to see, see you all again as well. As always, an absolutely gorgeous drive uh, on the way up here, and thankful to be able to have my boys, a couple of my boys with me anyway, this morning, and looking forward to hopefully in- encouraging you. Uh, this morning from God's Word. You know, even as, as you were praying and talking about kind of everything going on in the country right now, um, you know, sometimes things just don't make sense in, in our mind. And if you're looking for a title of the message, that would be it, when it doesn't make sense. Um, and for some people, that's something as simple as like the English language, right? Uh, the English language can be very difficult for some people to learn. I remember, actually for me, I was... One, I was born and raised in Georgia, so that's, that's a different language altogether anyway. Um, but I was probably six and a half, I think, before I ever even learned the alphabet. I was a little behind. But come to find out, again, I'm not the only one that struggled. And, it, and it, when you think about it, the English language doesn't make a lot of sense. All right? If you have one goose, but then you have many geese. Thank you. Yeah, you can talk back to me. If you have one moose, you have many moose. Moose. Doesn't, all right, you have one mouse and you have many mice. All right, and you have one house and you have many houses. Doesn't follow it. Did you learn the I before E rule? The I before E except after C and something about A and way and neighbor and something. I'm not sure. But, but the I before E except after C, come to find out there's more words that break that rule than follow that rule. And so I before E except after C, except when your neighbor Keith leisurely receives eight counterfeit beige slays from caffeinated atheist weightlifters. Well, that's weird. Um, but sometimes, sometimes it's, just, it's simple things like this, things that just make you chuckle, make you laugh. And then there's other times when maybe it's just like all of 2020. It's just, it doesn't make sense at all to me. Or, you know, a week ago, a week and a half ago when um, President Trump came down with the coronavirus and people were Again, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, people are like, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. It's about time, you know, he got exactly what he deserved. And, you know, saw Christians like, man, we should come around and pray for him and, and all of that. But then shortly before that, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and, and it was flipped. And there were Christians that were rejoicing at her, Christians, that were rejoicing at her death. And the other side that was totally heartbroken. Again, it, it doesn't make sense. And again, sometimes there are other things that just make you scratch your head. The other day, um, I came home from work, and on the table, actually it was on the counter across uh, from when I walked in the door, there was a plate full of tomatoes. I'm like, it's it's just, I don't know, just the the coloring, the timing of it all, I don't know, I was just hungry. Um, I came in, I was like, man, it's a good-looking plate of tomatoes from a distance, and I got a little bit closer I was looking at them, and in every single one of those tomatoes, there's a couple little bitty holes. That's odd. I've never seen, like, wormholes in a tomato. I don't know a lot about tomatoes. Outside, they're delicious in the right thing. I said, what what happened to the tomatoes? And Haley, my daughter, told me, said, well, I was listening to some music and working on dinner or something, and and Gideon, and he's my five-year-old, he took a headphone jack, some headphones, and it 
plugged it into the tomato. <laughs> because in his mind, he could take he could take that headphones and he could you know he could plug it into a tablet or something. He could hear what's on that tablet. You know, he could plug it into a CD player, and he would hear the music that's playing on that CD player. So in his five-year-old mind, what he thought says, I'd like to hear what's going on in the tomato. That's what he said. So he plugged the headphones into the tomato. He is homeschooled, so we're, we're working on that. But he, but he plugged it in, and in his mind, it made sense to him that if he plugged headphones into a tomato, that he would hear what was going on in the tomato. And me as his dad, and encouraging him, I said, Gideon, that doesn't make any sense, bud. It's a tomato. This morning, we're going to look at a portion of a story that, in our human thinking, and, and as we look at it, it, it just it doesn't make sense the way that it happened. If you would, read with me. We'll start in John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. One of the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, that they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray together this morning, if you will. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that even when things don't make sense, you are in control. And you are sovereign, and you are Lord. I ask this morning that you would give me the words to say you would help me to preach your word to your people for your glory for you alone are worthy we ask these things in Jesus name, Amen <clears throat> so just a little bit of background So John is one of the books of the Bible that we don't have to wonder why he wrote the book All right, we know it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but every, there's sometimes there's some books in the Bible where you kind of have to, you have to look pretty deeply or closely to figure out what was the overall true message of that book and in John's not that way because he tells us exactly why he wrote it in John chapter 20. In verse 31, John says, But these are written, what I've written in this book, these are written so that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So within that reason, there's an apologetic aspect and an evangelistic aspect of the reason why John is writing this book. The apologetic aspect that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You can know that. And that knowing the evangelistic aspect that by believing you have life in his name. Everything that John writes in the Gospel of John is pointing to that fact. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that, you'll have life in his name. As we look at this story in particular, this is the seventh miracle that we see recorded in the Gospel of John. The seventh one, the very first one being Jesus when he's at the wedding. And his mom comes and says, hey, they're out of wine. And he ends up turning the water into wine. And we go on from there. And this is the seventh one that we come to. Many would say it's uh, the most amazing miracle that Jesus performed publicly outside of his resurrection. It is the very last public miracle that we see of Jesus. There is one more that we'll see when he, after Peter gets upset and chops the guy's eye, uh, ear off, not eyes, but the ear off in the garden and, and Jesus puts that back on. But this is the last one that's done in a very public setting before that. And at the end of chapter 10, now in chapter 10, Jesus was going through it, talking about the fact that he is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and I know my sheep, and they know me. They're going to follow me. And at the end of chapter 10, the Pharisees are surrounding him, and other religious leaders, and they want to kill him. They're going to arrest him and take him into custody, and Jesus gets away, and he crosses the Jordan River. And as, as he's across that Jordan River, that this is where this story starts to take place. And part of the, the hard thing with looking at this story is that we know the end of the story. Right? We know what happens at the end of all of this. We know that at the end of, towards the end of chapter 11 that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But I'm going to ask you to put yourself in, in the place of the sisters this morning, in the place of the disciples. Try to, as we talked this morning, try to forget that you know the end of this story. Try to forget that you know what's going to happen because it's the, the people that are in this, they don't know what's going to take place. The first thing we're going to look at, and if you're a note taker, there's, there's five points. I'm really going to focus on two of them. But the first point being you can see the request of the sisters. And you see it in verse 3. It says, Lord, they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. A simple request, except it doesn't sound like a request, really. Right? The, the name of the one that is ill isn't mentioned. What they want Jesus to do with the one that is ill isn't mentioned at all. So, so the, even that request denotes a certain kind of relationship that there must be there. Right? Moms, have you heard those kind of requests before? Dads, have you heard those kind of requests? I, Gideon, he's, again, he's my father. I use him a lot. He gives us lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of opportunities to use him as examples. But sometimes his favorite phrases are, I'm thirsty. Mom, I'm thirsty. Mom, I'm hungry. Those things. He, he doesn't ask, Mom, may I please have a drink of water? We're trying to teach him that. Right? But even the fact that he says, like if, again, if somebody, does, if I have to go to Walmart on the way home today, and some stranger walks up to me and says, Man, I'm thirsty. Okay. I appreciate you letting me know. Um, that's good. There is a water fountain over there. But it's different when there's that relationship there. 
See, the sisters, as they spoke this request to Jesus, as they sent that message to him, they knew that Jesus would know exactly who they were talking about. They knew that, they, that Jesus would know exactly what they would want him to do. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Again, the name of the one that was sick wasn't mentioned. What they wanted wasn't mentioned. Because not only do you see the request of the sisters, you can see the relationship there was with this family. Time and time again, in the first few verses of this passage, it says, man, the one whom, you see it in verse 3, the one whom you love is ill. You can see it again in verse 5, when Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There was a relationship with his family, and most historians would tell you when Jesus was going to minister in Jerusalem, this is a family that he would stay with. They lived in a little town called Bethany, and it's mentioned there in verse 1, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. This was the Mary and Martha that, you know, not too long before, Jesus and the disciples was there, were there, was there and Jesus was teaching and Martha was running all over the house, you know, making sure things were ready and, and maybe making a meal, making sure the house was clean and everything. And she comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, Mary's just sitting there not doing a thing. You know, basically she's saying, tell Mary to get up off her backside and help me. Jesus said, no, she's chosen the better thing. And this was the same Mary that we'll see in chapter 12 and John makes mention of it here. Even in the second verse, the Mary that, that took that expensive perfume, a year's worth of wages, and, and broke that at the feet of Jesus and anointed his feet with that ointment. I, I think probably one of the purest pictures of worship that we see in all of Scripture. That Mary, there was a, a relationship that was there. And see, it's because of that request and because of the relationship with the family that when we get to verse 5, in the beginning of verse 6, that's when it doesn't make sense to me. In our, in, and again, in my human, in my, I guess, self-centered thinking. Because not only do we see the request of the sisters and we see the relationship with the family, we can see the response of Jesus. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill. You know, you could almost, verse 5 and 6 could go together. In some translations or paraphrases, say it this way. It said, because Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, you could finish the sentence. But how would we finish that sentence? How would we finish this sentence? Well, be, because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what, what would be our thinking? What would we think should happen next? And he dropped everything, and he went directly to them and healed Lazarus. Right? That's what would make sense to me. It's what would make sense to us. All right? When he heard that Lazarus was sick, because of his love for that family, he spoke a word because they've seen him do it before and he is all powerful and he can speak a word and heal Lazarus. He doesn't have to be there. But that's not what it says it happens. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus and when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. 
he stayed for two days longer. And again, we know the end of the story, but they don't. We know what's going to happen, but they don't. Martha doesn't know. Mary doesn't know. Lazarus doesn't know. All they know is they call for Jesus. And he didn't show up like they expected. It's not the response that those sisters expected. Pretty sure it's not the response that Lazarus wanted or expected. Not the response the disciples would have expected. What? But it's not the first time that Jesus doesn't respond how we would expect him to respond. I mean, if you think about how we look at when the woman was caught in adultery and, and she was brought before Jesus by the religious leaders and thrown at his feet and said, we caught this woman in adultery and the law tells us to stone her. What do you say? They were looking for him to say, well, stone her. But that's not how he responded. Or maybe they were looking to him to say, hey, go, go, get, the, go get the guy that she was caught with. Because you don't commit adultery by yourself. Go get the guy that she was caught with and bring both of them and we'll stone them. Both. Because they would both deserve it. But he doesn't do that either. He kneels down in the ground. And begins to write. As he's writing, he says, you know, you that are without sin cast the first stone and continues to write. And at least in my mind, I see is one by one, those guys dropping their stones and their rocks and walking away. And Jesus looks up and looks at that woman and says, where are those or who are those that condemn you? And Jesus says, no, my Lord. And he doesn't justify what she did, but he does say, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Or when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know the law, you know what the prophets say, you know, about the commandments and loving. And, and he says, man, I've done all that. I've kept that from my youth. I'm good on that end. And Jesus didn't say, well, repeat this prayer after me and just believe in me and you'll have eternal life. What did he tell that guy? Go and sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Like, that doesn't make sense. Jesus knew his heart. Or when the Pharisees, they did know the law. The guys running around, well, we are pretty good at all of this stuff. And when Jesus had a chance to confront them, what did he say? He says, and you guys look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. They're like whited sepulchers, whited gravestones. Man, you look all shiny on the, in the sun, but on the inside there's nothing. That's not how you win friends and influence people. He doesn't respond like we would expect. 
But this response, you know, when you look at verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. That doesn't seem like love to me. Because now that family, what Lazarus knows, as he drew his final few breaths before he died, is that Jesus had been sent for and he didn't show up. Didn't even speak the word that they had seen him do before. Now, Martha and, and Mary had to suffer that grief of losing their brother. Lazarus's friends and other family, the grief that they suffered. And we say, but, gee, but, he, but he gets risen from the dead. They don't know that. What they know is he's dead. Because Jesus didn't show up. That doesn't feel like love. That doesn't seem like love. You know, I wonder what now there there are people in pulpits all over in the front of churches this morning standing up that are preaching um, what is generally called the prosperity gospel. You know, if, if you're faithful and you love God, then God is going to bless you with health and you're not going to get sick. If you're faithful and you love God, then God is going to bless you with wealth and you'll never be in need. I wonder what they would do with this passage. When Jesus doesn't show up, and, and, and we know, you know, you're sitting here, you don't believe that. We know that. But sometimes we inadvertently act that way. Right? But God, I've done this, so I need this. But God, I go to church on Sundays and I tithe, and so I deserve this. But God, I don't understand what's going on. Why? Why can't you do this? Fill in the blank. Mary and Martha and Lazarus sent for the one that they knew could heal. And Lazarus died. And that doesn't make sense. In our minds, in our thinking, that doesn't make sense. That, again, what the, the love that we see in verse 5, him staying, choosing to stay two days longer doesn't make sense. But part of that is the reason is because we need to understand that Jesus always responds in love. But love doesn't always make sense. You know, this world's definition of love is basically, you know, we need to basically affirm what everybody else believes and what they believe about themselves, what they think about themselves. We need to make sure that we are um, encouraging to be whoever they are. That's what love is. But that's not what love is. Now, the Bible tells us what love is. It says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment, pay the penalty for our sins. That's love. One commentator wrote it this way. He says, Jesus shows his love to us by giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. 
a revelation to our soul of the glory of God. Giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. A revelation to our soul of the glory of God. So in these crazy times, it's been a couple of weeks ago now, we had a, it's kind of an informal talk, Bible study, with a group who are just struggling with everything going on in the world right now. And whether it's the political climate and culture of everything, or the, you know, the defund the police, or the police lives matter, black lives matter, and all of that, how, how is Christian? What do we do with all of that? What responsibility do we have? What are we called to do as Christians? What we are called to do is love. Again, love is not agreeing with everyone. Love is not telling people what they want to hear or avoiding confrontation or conflict at every turn. Love and the aspect of the glory of God, the best way to show love to others by doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God is their supreme joy. To help people see and be satisfied with the glory of God. If we're loving other people, that's what we're called to do. When I get in an argument with someone or if I have differences with someone, my, my goal should not be to change their mind or to get them to think like me. To get them to see God's glory. Not only do we see here the response of Jesus, we see the reservation of the disciples. They weren't sure about all this. Look, if you would, back with me at verse uh, number seven. So after staying there two days in the place where he was, then after this, verse seven, it says, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you want to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after these things, he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him. The disciples said, Well, if he's sleeping, that's good. He's going to recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, or told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him, Thomas. The twin said to his fellow disciples, let us go so we can die with him. It's kind of like that Eeyore. Well, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to die. We're all going to die. Just one of those days. They weren't looking forward to going back to Jerusalem. The last time they were there, and it wasn't the first time, the last time they were there, yeah, they wanted to kill him. And it's easy kind of to look at the disciples and say, man, they, should, they, they know better. They should trust. They, you know, these are the same disciples that were with Jesus when he was surrounded and he disappeared from the midst of everyone and got away. You know, the, the same disciples that had seen, that had been on the boat with Jesus when he spoke and the winds and the waves ceased and the storm was calm. And now we say, let's go back to Jerusalem. And they're like, hey, I don't know about that. Not sure if that's the wisest decision, Jesus. But again, it's 
not the first time we see in Scripture that people, when God calls them to something, or Christ asks them to do something, that they're a little hesitant. Right? Remember Abraham and Sarah? They, God came and told them through an angel, said, hey, you're going to have a you're going to have a baby. Abraham was like, yeah, kind of old. And Sarah's even older. Old. A little hesitant. When Moses was out in the burning bush, it calls to him. And God speaks to him through that burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, but, 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 but God, I, I, I can't talk well. Say, man, I can identify with Moses, but then you think, well, wait a minute, he's talking to a bush that God made talk. Or we look at Gideon, and at first we see if then the angel comes and says, hail you mighty man of valor, and Gideon's like, you're not talking to me. Or you look at Elijah, and Elijah, it, the same Elijah that called down fire from heaven. And he's like, God, I can't do this. I'm all alone. He wasn't alone. We see these same reservations that even though these people, they had seen God do amazing and miraculous and wonderful things, these disciples that had seen God work in amazing ways were still hesitant. And it's easy because we know the big picture, looking back, we know the story. We know how the story of Abraham and Sarah turned out. We know how the story of Moses turned out. And how God used them. We know the story of David and of Gideon and of Elijah and all of these. And we know how they turned out. It's like, man, they should have just trusted God. And then, but when God calls us to do something. Like, well, God, I don't know. But faithful is he who calls you who will also do it. The reservation these disciples had said, man, I don't want to go back there, God. I don't know if I can trust you. That's essentially what they were saying. I'm scared for my life. Jesus is in control. And then we see the reasoning of the Savior, the reservation of the disciples and the reasoning of the Savior. First to the disciples. What did he say? He said, there's 12 hours in a day. There's no need to fear the dark when you're walking in the light. Jesus is the light of the world. When you're walking with him, there's no need to fear the future. There's no need to fear the unknown. There's no need to fear at all. There's no need to fear death. As these the disciples were. Again, Thomas is like, man, we're all going to die. Reminds me of the verse in Psalm 23. Yea, yes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And that's what Jesus is saying. Guys, you don't have to fear. I'm with you. I'm here right now. And it's just like that with us. Whatever God calls us to as believers, His Holy Spirit is with us. He's in control. 
And not only that, the, the reasoning for the sisters is given in verse 4 there. It says, the sickness doesn't lead to death, but is that God may be glorified and the Son of God be glorified through it. The end result of this sickness is it is not is not death. It is God's glory and the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Lazarus did die. He was dead. The grief that the sisters felt was real. The disappointment, possibly, that Lazarus felt was real. But that was not the end result. The end result was the glory of God. And, and how... How good is our God that he could take something like death? I mean, really, the end result of, of sin and use it for his glory. You know, we see it at first in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned there in the garden and had listened to the serpent taken of the fruit and eaten after they were told not to, and God is speaking with them and he speaks to Eve and he speaks to Adam and he speaks to the serpent. Then in either verse 20 or 21 it says, and, and then he made clothes for them from the skin of an animal. And death was introduced to the world because of sin. But it points us to a bigger picture. It's a, a, a bigger picture that's also seen with Abraham and Isaac. God calls Abraham to, to go up onto the mountain to sacrifice, and he takes his son Isaac. And in my mind, I just see Abraham and Isaac as they're, they're heading up the mountain. They had left the rest of the servants and everything down at the bottom. And as they're walking, Isaac asking his dad, you know, I, I see the, the wood for the fire, and, you know, we've, we've got, but where's the lamb? And Abraham responds, God will provide himself. And they walk a little bit further, like, Dad, I, I don't see it. Where is the lamb? God will provide himself a lamb. And at the top of that mountain is Abraham has his knife drawn over his own son, Isaac, and God provides the ram in the thicket for that. In Luke chapter 7, the first time we see Jesus raise someone from the dead, there's a funeral procession that's going, going down and a widow is burying her son. And heartbroken and, and Jesus comes upon that and, and he heals that widow's son. And then Luke chapter 8, we see Jairus, the, the man that comes to Jesus and he's pleading, my daughter is sick. Please heal my daughter. And as he's pleading with Jesus, a messenger comes and says, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus speaks the word. And by the time he gets home, his daughter is well. And is risen from the dead. And then Lazarus, his third one, we see. By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And as Jesus is coming, Martha comes out to speak to Jesus. And she said, 
Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would have died. And a little while later, Mary comes out. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. I read an interesting thought on why it mattered as far as the four days go. And, and I don't know how much you know about Jewish culture and history. And this was interesting to me, and I never heard it before, but in traditional Jewish thinking, once someone dies, their soul stays around the body for two days, hovers almost over the body for two days. In those first two times that Jesus raised someone from the dead, they were both fairly immediate, fairly soon after their death. And so some could argue, some would say that, you know, maybe they weren't really dead to begin with. But this time, there was no doubt. It had been four days, again in Jewish thinking, the soul had already left, had departed this world. But every one of these is pointing us to a bigger death and a bigger resurrection. And Jesus defeating sin and death in the grave. But sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes the timing of it all doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't... I don't understand sometimes. Why God allowed certain things? You know, I don't know what, what it is you're going through, what this year is done to you personally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I don't know if there are other things. I don't know if you've lost someone and, it, and you don't understand and it doesn't make sense. I, I don't know if there's tough times at, at work or in your life or in your family and it doesn't make sense. I don't know if you're like me sometimes and sometimes it just feels like I'm sticking headphones into a tomato trying to listen to something and, and I don't hear anything because and it doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes it just feels like that in life. But what we are called to remember just as with the death of Lazarus it is for God's glory and the glory of his son Jesus Christ. Everything that we go through, God is working in for His glory. His ultimate goal is His glory because He is worthy. Again, thankfully for us, in the long run, that works out for our good as well, but sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. You know, the Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of men, or the chief end of man? And the answer is the question, well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it this way, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, 
do all for the glory of God. We sing a song back home um, sometimes. Uh, it's called, I don't remember what it's called, but it has the lines in it. It says, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. It's called, my worth is not in what I want. No one preacher said it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Whatever it is in life, whatever we're going through, when it doesn't make sense, and when I want to question God's plan, remember, it's for His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and the opportunity to share Your Word this morning. When life doesn't make sense, when it, whatever it is, doesn't make sense. Help us to trust you and to know that you are working all things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.